in Summer Psalms. Uh, this is a series we do in the summer because we know it's a hit or miss time of year, right, as far as people being able to be in uh, church with us. And we're glad um, for, for all of you who are here. And, um, but we take basically one psalm each, each Sunday and sort of stands by itself because each psalm pretty much stands alone. So uh, if you have, are here for the first time or uh, if uh, you haven't been here in a while, you haven't missed anything in, in like a progression of teaching, it's kind of each week uh, is its own thing. So that's why we like to do this in the summer. Um, and this year we just decided as a, as a staff team to pull Psalms out of a cup and say, okay, whatever order they come out, we're going to teach them. And that's, um, yeah, that that's, oh, leads to some fun stuff. But it's also great to, to have the Lord take us where he wants to go in that. So Psalm 132 is our text today. Um, this is uh, in a section of the Psalms called the Songs of Ascents. Um, there are 15 Psalms that make up the Songs of Ascents. They are song, Psalms that would have been sung as the people of Israel are traveling up to Jerusalem. And they always would, the Jewish people in the Old Testament times would always say they're going up to Jerusalem. Uh, you were never going down to Jerusalem. Even if you were coming north to south, like we would say we're going down to Alabama or something, right? Because we're going south. Um, they wouldn't ever talk about Israel or J- Jerusalem in that way. It was always going up. Part of that was to align their hearts to the fact that God's temple was there and that's that they're going up to see the Lord. Uh, the other side of it is just practically Jerusalem was set up on a hill, and so they were actually getting going up to Jerusalem in, in that way. Um, but these were psalms, these 15 songs of ascents. So ascending, right? That's where ascents comes from, that, that word ascending a hill. Um, they, were, they would have sung these songs as a congregation, moving towards the temple to celebrate the Passover or any other of the holy days of the Jewish calendar that, that would lead them to Jerusalem. And so this was a, uh, a section of the Psalms that were, would have been well familiar to the people who lived in those days. Um, so this Psalm, 132, is the longest of all the psalm, songs of ascent. They, most of them are anywhere from about nine verses to some of them just three verses. Many of them are very short because they would have needed to be memorized and, and it's easier to memorize something quick than long. But this one is 18 verses, by far the longest, um, by almost double the length of the next longest psalm. So that uh, is interesting, but we have a lot to, to go through here and talk about. Um, let, let's talk about this specific psalm because I think this one of all of them needs a little bit of Old Testament background for us to grasp what's being said. If we just come into it without any kind of clarity on where the Old Testament is teaching these concepts, we may be a little bit lost on the, the significance of this. And so before we get into Psalm 132, I'm going to take us to 2 Samuel 7. Now you can go there if you'd like uh, to read along with, but I can, I can take us through this. Um, 2 Samuel 7 is the historical background for this, this psalm. If we understand what's being taught in 2 Samuel 7, we will definitely understand much more clearly what the song, song of Ascent that we're looking at is teaching and what it's trying to get our hearts to understand. Um, you'll see extremely common themes throughout, throughout these passages. 
Um, so in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord makes a covenant with King David. King David has now been established officially as the king. Uh, king Saul was, of course, the first king of Israel, but he pretty quickly disqualified himself from that role. And God said to him, uh, your family's not going to carry on this, this line of, of kings. I'm going to establish another king in your place. And that king is David. And uh, David goes through a long kind of difficult period of time in the interim, in the in-between period. Saul gets really crazy, starts trying to kill David, all those things we kind of talked about last week a little bit. Um, but now David is established by this point in 2 Samuel 7, and pretty much all of the fighting has stopped. Okay, so that's, that's where we're at. But let's, let's read it, starting in verse 1. It says, Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark, the ark of the covenant, the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. All right, so what, what's going on here real quick is just David is settled as king. The fighting has stopped. There's peace and prosperity in the land. He was able to build himself a very fancy palace, this house of cedar, this beautiful house. And he's looking around the house and going, man, I have this glorious place to live, but the ark of God lives in a tent. So that goes back to the tabernacle. If you remember the Old Testament story of the Exodus, the people had to travel through the wilderness for 40 years. And so they had a tabernacle, a tent that they would set up in a camp. They'd put the ark in there. The pre and the ark represented the presence of God. Um, it was a box, but it, it represented God's presence with the people. And so they would put this ark in the tabernacle. And then when God would send them to move into another place, they'd tear it all down, travel with it, set it up again. And that's, that happened all the way through the wilderness wanderings into the judges period, into King Saul's kingdom, kingship, and then now into David. And so David's looking around and going, why is it right that God's presence has a tent and I have this beautiful house? Basically what he's saying is I'm going to build God a house. And he goes to Nathan the prophet and tells him, I want to build God a house. And Nathan says, go for it. It sounds great. But verse four, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd the people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. 
and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all the words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. Okay, so that should be enough for us to, to go on with. But here's what, here's what God says to David. Uh, you're not going to build me a house. I don't need you to build me a house. I could, I could have had any, any of my judges do this for me. I don't need that from you. Um, one of your sons will do that for me as I will lead them to do it. But I don't need you to do this. What I, but, but what's amazing in this is that instead of getting something from David, God promises to give David something, which is grace, right? He says to David, you won't build me a house, but I will build you a house. Now, what does he mean? Is he talking about a literal structure? No, David already had a house. He's talking about building David's family into a lineage, a line of kings that would sit on the throne forever. Uh, like, so when you think about this idea of the monarchy, we don't have a monarchy in, in our country. And so sometimes this gets lost on us. But if you just think a little bit across the ocean there, that tiny little island called England, they have a, they have a monarchy, right? And their family, the family who is going to be on that throne in England is the House of Windsor. Okay, so the House of Windsor doesn't, isn't talking about a literal house. It's talking about this family, this lineage. And so that's what God is getting at with David. I'm going to build you a house. It's the house of David. It's going to be his line and lineage of kings. And he says, I'm going to let your descendants rule on the throne forever. And so that uh, is what is called the covenant with David, the Davidic covenant. It's this promise that God makes David that one of his own grandchildren, great-grandchildren, on and on it goes, will, will sit on the throne forever. All right, so with that in, in view, let's go back to Psalm 132 because that's, that whole thing is basically what they're remembering and reflecting on. And you'll see that as we go through this. Okay, um, this psalm is uh, working through that covenant with, with David and unpacking it. So let's start in verse 1. It says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard, it, heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. 
Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away your face from your anointed one. So in the first half of this psalm, they are reflecting back. This was many, many decades, possibly centuries after uh, David, probably not quite centuries, but you know, quite a long time. And David is no longer alive. He's, he's long dead. His, one of his sons is, is king in Israel. But the people who are writing this psalm and are singing this psalm as they travel up to Jerusalem are reflecting back, remembering this first part of 1 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 7, which is that David was zealous to build God a house, right? He, he, wanted, he went to Nathan the prophet and said, I want to build God a house. Look at this house I live in. God deserves a better house than I do. He wanted to build a temple, a place, a permanent dwelling place for God's presence to be among the people. And the psalm is drawing out those realities. It starts with this, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, right? So they're saying, God, look back at David and what he did and how he loved you. And, and basically they're asking God to, to help them and to care for them because of David, right? They're, they're basically appealing to David and saying, God, remember David? Uh, treat us well because of him is, is basically the idea here. Give us favor because of David's favor that you gave to him. And so they walk through this whole thing that God, um, that, that David was zealous to give God a place to dwell. They quote him here. This quotation is not from the passage in, in the text we just read, but this is probably the spirit of where David's heart was at. I will not enter my house, go to, get into my bed, give sleep to my eyes or slumber until I find a place for the Lord. This is just basically expressing David had a passion project. And, and he, this is obviously poetic language. It's not literally that David did not sleep until he could do this because then he would have never slept, right? He didn't build the house. So it's not saying that he's not actually sleeping, but what he's saying is he's got this passion for this project and he wants to see, see it fulfilled. In fact, we know David uh, did all of the work to get the temple ready to build. He did everything except build it. He brought all the materials together. He got the craftsmen ready to go. He, he had everything ready to go so that when Solomon took over for him as king, Solomon didn't have to do any work except just get everybody together and put, put the thing together. Here's all the pieces you need. Let's do it. Right? David was passionate to build God a house. He didn't get to do it himself, but he was, he was doing everything he could to get there. And so here the, the people of Israel, years and years later, are reflecting back on that. There's another thing that they reflect on, and this is found in verse 11 and 12. And it says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. What's the oath? One of the sons of your body Will, I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So first they're reflecting on God's, or David's zeal before the Lord to build him a house. And now they're reflecting kind of in reverse on God's promise and dedication to David to give him a, a line and lineage that lasts forever. 
So though David wants to build God a house, he doesn't get to, but God says, I'm actually going to build you a house and make you a, a lineage of kings. So there's basically two ideas here that are being fleshed out. Uh, one is that God's presence is seen uh, through the temple and through the Ark of the Covenant, that God's presence is there, and secondly, that God's king is in place. Right? And we're seeing that through this language of the covenant, the oath that God makes to David. So as we read through this, I'm sure if you're like me, you're thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with me? (laughs) What in the world? Okay, great. I mean, cool. If I lived in Old Testament Israel, maybe this would matter. Does this matter to us? Well, it, it may not seem like it on the surface, but it actually has everything to do with us. Because what is being expressed here, this zeal for God's house, this promise of God giving Israel a king forever through the line of David ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so in that way, it has to do with all of us. Because while this psalm is about David and his, his family and the things that happened to him, these things are ultimately about Christ and what he has done. I want to show you a couple ways in which Jesus is actually the fulfillment of these words. That Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David, right? This promise that a son of your own body will sit on the throne. Jesus is that. We we see that in the New Testament very clearly. We also see that Jesus is actually the better and more fulfilling David because he, he takes David's passion to a whole different level. And so let's look at Jesus for a few minutes and then we'll come back to the end of this psalm. But here, here are the two main ideas in the psalm, right? God's presence through the temple and God's king through, David's, uh, through God's promise to David. In both of those things, Jesus is actually the point. It's not about this guy who lived 4,000 years ago or something and is dead now. It's actually about our Savior who lived and died and rose again and lives forever now as our King, as the King that God had promised to give us. So here we're going to see Jesus is better than David for at least two reasons, actually for three reasons. Um, The first is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to build David a house. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to build David a house. Um, We see this in the genealogies of Jesus, and I'm I'm not going to try to read through all of these things, but if you just look at Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, we have two genealogies of Jesus Christ. That... um, I know can be brutal to read through because it feels like you're reading the phone book, right? It's just a whole long list of names. And sometimes our, you know, our eyes glaze over and we go, okay, oh man, what's the point of this? But the point is actually very intentional. It is to show us with absolute certainty that Jesus Christ came to the world through the line of David, through the lineage of David. 
we see this through his, his father, his adoptive father, Joseph, who is from the line of David. Um, in fact, when Joseph is spoken in the, at the Christmas story, right? When Joseph is being talked to by the angel, the angel says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And so here you, you're seeing that, but you're also seeing just before those verses, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which starts with, uh, starts with um, Abraham and works its way down through to Jesus. But, but just verse one will give us what we need. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the summary, okay? So we don't have to read all the other individual names, but the individual names unpack that for us and show us the direct lineage of Jesus. So he comes from the line of David. And actually one of the titles that is used of him uh, throughout the gospels is son of David. That's significant because that means that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to David. He's the fulfillment of this to be the house and part of the house of David. He comes through the line and lineage. We also see though that Jesus is the better uh, David because he wasn't just zealous for God's house. He actually came to be God's house, God's temple, God's presence among us. There's two places that I want to show you this. One is the Gospel of John chapter 2, and then the other is Matthew 12, 1 to 7. But in John chapter 2, there's a, there's a story that we're told of Jesus clearing out the temple. It's, it's a fairly familiar story if you've uh, read the Bible a, a bit here and or have been to church a while. You've probably heard it. Um, Jesus is uh, at the, in Jerusalem at the Passover. He walks into the temple and there he sees all these people selling sheep and oxen and all these things. And he gets really angry and he clears it out, right? He makes a whip and he drives everybody out of there. And um, he says to them in verse 16, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal or passion for your house will consume me. That's a quote from a different psalm than the one we're looking at, but it gets at the same idea of David. Those words were about David that are then being applied to Jesus. And this passion for God's house will consume me. So verse 18 says that the Jews said to him, what signs do you show us for doing these things? Basically, they come up to Jesus and go, what gives you the right to come in here and clear out this temple? What, is, what in the world is happening? You have no right to do this. So what does Jesus say to them? Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures 
and the word that Jesus had spoken. So what we're seeing here is that Jesus is actually applying the temple not to that structure of rocks that that Solomon built, but to his own body. He being the, the temple of God, the true presence of God among us. John fleshes this out in the first chapter of the gospel too, where he says that God dwelt among us. He, that, that word dwelt is actually the word for tabernacle. So this idea of God having his presence be among us is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better temple. He is actually the true temple. We don't need a new one. We don't need, in fact, God destroyed the temple in AD 70, uh, several, several uh, decades after Jesus was raised from the dead. I think he used the Romans to do that, but I think God did that for the intention of destroying that which we do not need. We come to God through Jesus. We don't come to God through the temple. Jesus is the temple. He says it right here. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And they think he's talking about the actual temple, the one with all the you know, fancy ornaments and the, and the beautiful structure. He wasn't talking about that. He was talking about himself, which is the true temple. I think, I think there's one other passage I want to show you here that Jesus says something that is truly um, I think just really clear. And so Matthew chapter 12, this is not specifically about Jesus being in the temple, but he, he does address it here. So starting in verse one, it says, at this time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry. So they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So basically he's saying to the Pharisees, well, David broke the law and the law that you're telling my disciples they can't break isn't really the law. It's your interpretation of the law. So he's using that as an example. And then he says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? What does he mean there? Well, he's saying that the priests have to work on the Sabbath. They don't get to take the Sabbath off, and yet they're seen as guiltless because it's part of their function. It's part of their job to work on the Sabbath. And so he's saying, don't don't you guys read your Bibles? Come on. But now this is the key. Verse 6, this is as clear as, as day on what we're talking about. Verse six, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What is he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. Something greater than the temple is here, you guys. You're missing the point. So Jesus is better than David because he wasn't just zealous to build God a house. He actually is the presence of God that that house represents. Secondly, we see that Jesus wasn't just passionate for the presence of God, but he was the presence of God. We touched on this, but there's one more verse I think it's important to look at. Uh, Colossians 1.19, very clearly Paul tells us that Jesus is the embodiment of God himself with us. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him, in Jesus, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
God's presence and, and uh, fullness dwelt in the person of Jesus Christ. So here's what Spurgeon helps us with here. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in London in the 1860s. And here's what he said. He, he writes, Where can there be made a fit dwelling place for the Most High? He fills all things, and yet all things cannot contain him. There is only one dwelling place of God. It is in Jesus Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Oh, how we ought to thank God that he has provided himself a fitting dwelling place in the person of his dear son, in whom all believers are also built together for the habitation of God through the Holy Spirit. So here we're seeing Spurgeon flesh this out for us, which is helpful, that there, there is no place that we have to go to be with God. There is only a person to whom we have to go to be with God, and that is Jesus one, one more way that Jesus is better than David um, that I want to talk about. And then we'll, then we'll come back to the psalm and, and start unpacking what this means. Um, Jesus is better than David because he's not just the son of David. He is that, right? We, we saw that in Matthew 1. We've seen that throughout the Gospels. He's referred to as the son of David. But he's not just the son of David. He is also God's only begotten son. He is God's son who was born in human body through the line and lineage of David, yes, but he is not just the son of David. So what that means is, is that God in Christ is not just some temporary person who's here and then is gone and can't help us anymore, but he is actually the fullness of God in his person because he is God who became man. So he's better than David. David lived, he was a great king. He wasn't a perfect king, but he was a great king. But guess what? He died. And then if you read through the kings, the, the first, first and second kings, first and second chronicles, that's where I'm at right now in my Bible reading for the year. And it's just brutal because everybody who comes after David is a total train wreck. Like it's awful. Um, David was like the best they had. And then Solomon was pretty good. And then he ruined it at the end. And then everybody else after Solomon was just pretty much, with a few exceptions, pretty much a, a, a giant mess. But then Jesus comes through this line, this family, this crazy, terrible, kingly family. He comes into this world to be not just David's son, but God's son. Where God says at his baptism in, in Matthew chapter 3, God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He is the fullness of all that David could not be. Jesus is the fullness and the fulfillment of what David was never going to be. And so here we are. Uh, let's go back to Psalm 132. We get to unpack the rest of this a little bit here, but um, this, this psalm really is about us and it's for us. It is to assure us that Jesus Christ is what we actually need. On a practical level, what this means is that we do not need to look for some earthly leader to take us where we need to go. We don't need to put our hopes in them. What we need to do is put our hopes in Jesus, who is the risen Son of God, who rules and reigns for us. 
the rest of this psalm, verse 13 to 18, unpacks the blessings that God has given to his people. And all of these things are true for us in Christ. But look at it. It says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The people of Israel, as they were singing this song on their way to the temple, were reflecting on God's goodness and grace to them. And yet they, at that time, didn't even see it in its fullness. How much greater for us to see the Lord Jesus bless his people and care for us. It doesn't mean that our earthly lives will be nothing but good because we will, we will suffer. We do suffer. Uh, suffering is a part of life in a fallen world. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts that it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. We walk through suffering, but all the while we have a, an ultimate promise of hope and, and a future. What happens here, Paul calls a light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. What Jesus has given us is an eternal weight of glory that we will experience in his presence. But to get there, we have to go through some light and momentary afflictions. Your afflictions may not feel light or momentary, but they are in the scheme of eternity. Seen through the lens of, of an eternal life, they are light and momentary. But Jesus will get us to the eternal weight of glory. So in the meantime, as we stand here, as we live our lives here, what, what do we do with this? Well, I think it's important to see that this psalm at its core, at its foundation, is an appeal to God to bless Israel because of David, right? That's what they're doing. They're basically saying, look at David, God, all those years ago when David was king and how, how great he was, would you treat us in that way? Because for his sake. In verse 10, uh, they actually say this. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. For David's sake, God, treat us good. That's what they're saying. Treat us well. Treat us with blessing because of David. But if we have Christ, who is the greater David the true fulfillment of David, then we actually get to appeal to a far greater person. We get to come before God the Father and say to him, be merciful to me, show me grace, forgive me, love me, work through me because of your son Jesus, because I stand in him because I'm united to him, because he's my righteousness. Would you give to me those blessings because of Jesus? We get to come to God the Father with an advocate. That's what John, in his letter, 1 John, 
chapter 2 takes us. And I want to encourage you to think about these words. I'll read it for us here. But 1 John chapter 2, one, just 1 and 2. We'll just look at the first two verses for the sake of time. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, so this whole letter he's writing is so that we don't sin. But we probably will, right? Because that's what he says next. If anyone does sin, so there's a category for Christians to still sin. If anyone does sin, well, then what happens? What, what's next for us? Are we going to just be shot from heaven with lightning because we sin? No, here's the promise of the gospel. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a fancy word for he took our sin and took the punishment that they deserved on on himself. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is what it means to have Jesus be the greater king than David ever could be, is that as we are united to him, as we are under his lordship and rule and reign, we can go to God the Father as the righteous judge and say, God, I sinned, but I have an advocate, the righteous son that you sent into the world to die for that sin. And we have Jesus who is actually on our side in that. That's what an advocate is. An advocate is a person who comes on the behalf of someone else and basically stands in front of them and goes, well, I'm going to represent them now. I'm in their place. That's what an advocate does. And uh, this this book, Gentle and Lowly, that we've been handing out, uh, there's a whole chapter on what it means for Christ to be our advocate. And I just pulled a short paragraph out of that chapter to read for you because I think it's so helpful. So Dane Ortland, the author of that book, says this. He says, what if we never needed to advocate for ourselves because another had undertaken to do so? What if that advocate knew exhaustively just how fallen we are and yet at the same time was able to make a better defense for us than we ever could for ourselves? No blame, no shifting, no excuses is the way we tend to operate, but just perfectly just, pointing to his all-sufficient sacrifice and sufferings for you on the cross. What then? We would be free. Free of the need to defend ourselves, to bolster our sense of worth through self-contribution, to quietly parade before others our virtues in painful subconscious awareness, of our inferiorities and weaknesses. What he says is this, we can leave our case to be made by Christ, the only righteous one. I think that that gets at the heart of this psalm, that they are asking David to be their advocate. They're asking God to see David and to to advocate for for them. But we have something far greater. We have God's own son who entered into this world to be for us the advocate for when we sin. We don't have to be crushed by our sin anymore. We can give it over to Jesus. He takes it, he died for it, and he will then stand for us 
in our place to defend us. What a great God we have. Only the God of the Bible will do that for you. Every other faith, every other religion, every other attempt to figure out this life and to cope with our problems is about us doing enough. It is only in Jesus that the work has been done. And so we get to be free and live. So let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you are the righteous advocate we desperately need. And I pray that we would lean into you today as the propitiation for our sins to be covered and to be cleansed. Lord, would you help us to see that you are the better and fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And and we pray, God, that our hearts would leap for joy because of what you have done and accomplished for us. Would you help us to love you more today? We pray that we would live in the freedom of the gospel, not in a a, uh, desperation of doing more, but just in resting in what you have done for us through Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.